like to read to you this morning from Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49, verses 13 through 16. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains. For the Lord hath comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will not I forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, the scriptures will speak to the heavens and the earth as if they had ears to hear and a voice to actually speak. Sometimes mountains and valleys are spoken of in the same way. So here Isaiah says, Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people. And that's something to sing about. That's something to praise God for. The Lord hath comforted his people, and will have mercy upon his afflicted. Oftentimes the Lord referred to Israel as a, an afflicted people. In the book of Zephaniah says, I'll leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people. And they shall trust in the name of the Lord. But Zion, capital Z, Z-I-O-N. But Zion said, the Lord hath forsaken me and my Lord hath forgotten me. Now Zion was the name of a, a mountain adjacent to where Jerusalem was at. Jerusalem was kind of an area where there was a cluster of hills, high hills and, and mountains. And David captured this from the Jebusites. And this became the stronghold of David. And later on we find where Zion and Jerusalem were used interchangeably. We read in Zechariah 9.9, for example, where the prophet said, Shout, O Jerusalem, rejoice, O Zion. He's talking about the same people here, just used two different names. They're used interchangeably. Here we see where it says, but Zion said, well, obviously he's talking about the inhabitants of Zion, those who live there, his people, the children of Israel that were there, occupied that, that particular geographical area. But Zion said, the Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. Now that was not true. There was not one time in all of Israel's history that they could say in a legitimate way that the Lord had forgotten them or that the Lord had forsaken them. All we got to do is read it. Read all their history in the Old Testament. You'll never find where that happened, not one time. But Israel did specialize in complaining. They did specialize in murmuring. And here they said the Lord had forsaken us. The Lord has forgotten us. But again, that was not true. Here, the Lord responds in this way. Notice here in verse 15. Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? The Lord here appeals to Israel by using the greatest example of love, caring, compassion that the human race knows anything about. Can a woman, now notice he doesn't say mother here, but this woman is a mother. But oftentimes I've heard ministers quote, and I'm sure I did it myself, quote this by saying, can a mother forsake her sucking child? 
But it doesn't say mother, it says woman, but she does have a child, so that does make her a mother, right? At least a biological mother. So the Lord asked the question. He addresses their complaint with this illustration, this question. Can a mother forsake her sucking child? Now notice we're talking about a child that's still very, very young, has not been weaned yet. The child is nursing. When God created men and women, and that's exactly how he created them. In the beginning, God created Adam out of the dust of the earth. And then he took a rib out of his side and he made a woman. And there's a difference between a man and a woman in many different ways. It's incredible that we live in a time in which there are people in this world who don't seem to understand that. But I can assure you that is true. He gave a woman uh, maternal instincts. He gave the man paternal instincts. In other words, in their nature, uh, God, as he created them, gave them this, these feelings and this, this instinct and this care to have for their offspring, for their children. And I believe you can see this in all of God's creation. You can see it in the animals that he created. How that the, the mother always takes care of the pups and the kittens and the cubs, etc., etc. And if you don't think so, you just... Do something to make her think you're threatening that and you will know in a, in a hurry uh, that she's going to take care of her offspring. So the Lord asked this question. Can a woman forsake her second child that she should not have compassion on the son of a womb? Now you might think in the beginning, no, she, she would never forsake her second child. She would always have compassion upon the son of her womb. But we know that's not true, don't we? We live in a country right now where women forsake their children at an alarming rate. First of all, we got the ungodly act of abortion. But even children who are born who carry it full term, how many times have firemen found babies at the fire station? How many times have the police found babies at the police station where a woman has a child and takes that baby to those locations? And we can give other examples of that. They've been found in some of the most un, ungodly places you can think about, even in, in trash bins and things of that nature, where the child is still living. Now, in general, that's not true, but there are some exceptions to this, and the Lord says so right here. Notice again what he says. Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Now, he's appealing to the highest level of love, compassion, and care that mankind knows in the human race. That's the love, care, and compassion of a mother to her sucking child. A child that's been part of her. A child that came forth from her womb that she has carried about nine months. And now she has that child. And she is nursing that child. Can she forsake that child? Yes, she can. Every once in a while, we hear a news story. Every once in a while, we reach up in the newspaper, whatever, where indeed that has taken place. The Lord says, yea, they may forget. That's possible. They may do it. He says, yet will I not forget them. I think we have an example of this found in the book of 1 Kings chapter 3. When you go to 1 Kings, of course, you're reading about the life of Solomon at this point. Solomon is now king of Israel. Solomon followed his father David. These two men, even though father son, there was a tremendous amount of difference between the two of them. David lived the simple life of a shepherd for many years in his life. And David lived the life of a soldier. 
And David spent many nights with looking up at the stars with a rock under his head for a pillar lying on the hard ground. Solomon never did that. Solomon his entire time lived in luxury. Solomon his entire time lived in a palace. He knew nothing about the kind of life that his father David had lived. We find that David's reign over Israel was 40 years, and so was Solomon's. And the reign of David over Israel was a standard for all kings after that to be measured by. Now, David was God's king. The first king of Israel, of course, was Saul. He was the people's choice. And then David was a man after God's own heart. And after God removed Saul, he established David to be king over Israel. But now David uh, has stepped aside, and his son Solomon is now the king of Israel. And we come to the third chapter in the book of 1 Kings, and we find where Solomon prays a prayer. Now, he, he prayed a very unselfish prayer. We're going to give him credit for this. He prayed a God-honoring prayer. He prayed that he might have wisdom, that he might know how to go in and out before so great a people. He felt like he was inadequate. He felt like he didn't have the, the knowledge and he had the wisdom to be able to do something like this. So he prayed to God for that. And God gave it to him. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power of God that worketh in us. He gave Solomon far more than Solomon asked for. In fact, he told Solomon, he says, because you've not asked for the lives of your enemies, you've not asked for riches. He said, I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to give you an abundance of riches. And he says, and I'm going to give you the lives of your enemies. And he did that over time. But he said, I'm going to give you wisdom unlike any man's ever had before, unlike any man will ever have after that. And so Solomon is known for his great wisdom, correct? So God was pleased with this prayer of Solomon. And then immediately we have an example of that wisdom. The Bible says two harlots came in to Solomon. Now, these two harlots had both had a child about three days apart. They lived in the same house. And then during the night, one of the harlots overlaid her child and the child died. During the night, she switched the children. She switched the babies. Okay? The next morning, the mother of the child that was still living recognized this was not her child. You can't fool the mother. <laughs> she, she knew this was not her child, but there were no witnesses. Lived in the same house, no witnesses to any of this. So they brought their case to Solomon. And they told it. And the woman whose child got switched, she told Solomon exactly what happened. She said, during the night, the child died that this woman had because she overlaid the child. Perhaps she was irresponsible. She wasn't careful. I don't know the details. And she said, during the night, she switched. She said, this is not my child. Now, the other woman challenged that statement, saying that was not true that the living child was her child. So what is Solomon going to do? Now, if you've read the Bible and you know the story, you know what Solomon did, but let's suppose you hadn't. Now, what, just think, what are you going to do? How are you going to decide this? Where's the additional evidence for Solomon to have before him to make the decision here whose child belongs to the right person? Well, here's where the wisdom comes in. Solomon did not appeal to their speech. He appealed to their heart. 
So he says, bring a sword and divide the child in two and give half the child to this woman and half the child to that woman. Now you're going to see in this picture here, one woman indeed is not going to forsake her second child. The other woman is. Take the sword, divide the child, give half the child to one woman, the other half the child to the other woman. And when he said that, the Bible says, the mother of the living child, her bowels yearned for this child. There was something on the inside that she just could not allow this to happen. And she cried out and said, let the other woman have the child. Solomon stopped the order. He says, and the other woman spoke up and said, divide the child. She was in agreement with it. She was in agreement. She didn't want the child to begin with. And you might think, well, what, why, why did she go to all this trouble? I personally think she was embarrassed at her irresponsibility for her not being cautious and careful as should have and her child dying to begin with. So she's going to switch them and claim that to be her child. But when it came right down to it, at the end, she was okay having the child slain, divided in half, and a half child go to each one. Solomon stopped the order. He said, give the child to this woman. She's the mother of the living child. Here we have an example where this woman would not forsake her sucking child. If it meant giving that child up to somebody else so the child could live, she was willing to, to do that. But the other woman, she was guilty of forsaking her child. She was guilty of forgetting. So I think we have an example of what the prophet is writing to us about here. I come to the second chapter of the book of Exodus, and we mentioned this last Sunday when we spoke to you concerning the three arcs of God. And we find here where there's a woman and her husband have a child. When they have this child, a decree has gone out from Pharaoh that every male Hebrew child that's born is to be drowned in the river. They continue their life along just like they always had. The Lord blessed them for her to conceive. And she had a child under these trying conditions. And they kept the child hid for three months. But after three months, when the child could no longer be hid... We find where Moses' mother made a bull, made an ark out of bulrushes, and she pitched it with slime and with pitch, and she put Moses in that ark of bulrushes and laid him in the flags of the river by the riverside. Now, Moses' mother is commended for doing this, both in Acts chapter 7 and Hebrews chapter 11. She has not forsaken her child. She's done all she could for three months to keep this child safe and protected this child from the commandment and the, uh, the decree that's come from, from Pharaoh. But she can no longer do that. So now she's trusting in the Lord to take care of this child. And this is what she did. I believe the Lord directed her to do this and guided her to do this. And who's the first person to notice this child in the ark of bulrushes in the river? Well, it's, it's Pharaoh's daughter of all people. You probably think at this point, you know, oh no, this is Pharaoh's daughter. She will surely side with her father and have him slain, but she did not. The babe wept. She recovered the baby. The babe, babe wept, and she recognized this one of the Hebrew women, uh, the baby, one of the Hebrew uh, women. And when all this was going on, Moses had two older, uh, had a brother and a sister, a brother by the name of Aaron and a sister by the name of Miriam, and Miriam is watching afar off to see what's going to happen. And so she approaches Pharaoh's daughter and says, shall I fetch a Hebrew woman to nurse the child? She says, yes. And she ran and got Moses' mother 
And of course, Pharaoh's daughter did not know who it was. All, she knew this was a Hebrew woman. She did not know it was Moses' mother. And she told Moses' mother, you nurse and raise this child for me, and I'll give you wages to do it. What a wonderful mother Moses' mother was. Did all she could for three months, take care of this child, protect the child, but now, you know, you can only do that for so long. So now she is putting her entire trust in the Lord to take care of this child. And this child, 80 years from that day, returns back to Egypt after being gone for 40 years and brings God's people out of the bondage of the Egyptians. Let's turn to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 1. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, we're introduced to a family. The husband's name of the father, or the, well, father too, is Elkanah. And he has two wives. One is Hannah, one is Penuel. And he had several children by Penuel. But notice he marries Hannah first. This is his real love, is Hannah. But Hannah had not been able to have any children. In fact, the Bible is going to tell us that the Lord shut up her womb. Did not have any children, but he had several children by Penuel. So we're going to find where Hannah recognizes the problem is not my husband, the problem is me. And they would go up to his city, the city that was designated for him and his tribe, to go up once a year for worship and to honor the Lord with offerings and sacrifices. They go up there, and the family goes. And we find where her husband gives portions unto Penuel and her children, but he gives Hannah a worthy portion. That means a greater portion, just like Joseph did with Benjamin. Remember that? How he gave a, a mess of, of food to all his brothers. When he came to Benjamin, he gave him five times that. Gave him more clothing and everything else. He was very special to him. Hannah was very special to him. He loved Hannah, but Hannah had been barren because the Lord had shut up her womb. This grieved Hannah. She desired to have a child. And what made it worse is that Penuel, she made fun of Hannah. And she mocked Hannah. She had several children. You know, you're talking about mean-spirited people. People can be mean-spirited at times, un, uh, uncalled for. And she is making fun of Hannah because Hannah has not been able to conceive and have a child. How, how mean can you be? we find that Hannah was sorrowful in her soul. But the Bible says that Hannah prayed. Now the word Hannah means a woman of grace. If there's ever been a person in the Bible that you read about that's described to us that exemplifies the grace of God and a person who lives by the grace of God and you see grace all over that person is Hannah. Her name means the grace of God. And so she prays to the Lord. She pours out her heart to the Lord. And as she's praying, there's a priest by the name of Eli. Now, Eli had two sons, and his sons were very evil and very corrupt. Eli himself was, got to be elderly, and he'd heard of the things his sons had done there at the temple, how they had done some very corrupt and vile things there. But he is the highest religious leader among the people in this particular day. They... You know, they're living in the time of the judges. So Hannah is praying, but she's not making any sound. Her lips are moving, but nothing's coming out of them as far as that which is audible. And Eli thinks she's been drinking. 
And Eli chastises her and rebukes her for this. He misunderstood. He didn't know what she was doing. All he knew was, here's a woman, her mouth is moving, the words are coming out, so he thinks she has been drinking and is intoxicated. But she replies to him and says, not so. She says, I'm a woman of a sorrowful spirit. And I've been praying and I've been pouring out my heart to God. Now in the book of James, the New Testament, chapter 5, verse 16, it says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. He gives us the example of Elijah and his life and his prayers that God answered, but he's not the only example. But God does give us that one. So if you're having a hard time trying to find one, God helps us out right there. But there's a number of others. You remember the time that Joshua prayed that the sun and the moon would stay in one place while he was engaged in battle? And the Bible, he says, and Joshua spake to the Lord. And we're not given any of the words that he spake to the Lord. It just says he spake to the Lord. Now, if nothing else, that teaches me the profitability of talking to the Lord. It, talk, it teaches me the benefit of talking to the Lord. So he talked to the Lord. The next thing you know, we find Joshua actually himself commanding for the sun and the moon to stand still, and it did. And he had additional daylight saving time on that occasion. See, man came up with this a long time after the Lord did. And you're going to find where they won the battle, and the Bible says there was never a day before or a day after that that God hearkened to the voice of a man. There's an example of the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, isn't it? And you're not going to find anybody much more righteous than Joshua was in the Old Testament day. Here's an example of a righteous prayer. Here's an example of a, a fervent, righteous prayer of a righteous person in Hannah. The Lord has shut up her womb, and Hannah prays, and she says this in a prayer. Lord, if you'll give me a man-child, she says, I will give him back to you. I will lend him back to you. I will give him back to you. He might serve you all the days of his life. Now, I have to feel like here that the Lord had shown Hannah a few things. Hannah is praying a very unselfish prayer. It's going to be an effectual, fervent prayer. But it's going to be a very unselfish prayer. What a contrast between Penuel and Hannah, right? These two women. Hannah had to overcome the ridicule of Penuel. She had to overcome the misunderstanding of Eli and the rebuke that came from Eli that was totally incorrect and wrong. She had to overcome all of that. But what an attitude she has. What a spirit she has. It's like the Lord Jesus Christ and Peter tells us he was reviled, but he reviled not again. When people criticized the Lord Jesus Christ, when people mocked him one thing or another, oftentimes the Lord never even said a word. And this is the impression I get here from Hannah as she has to endure the treatment that she's been receiving from her husband's other wife. You know what he uh, and what her, her husband had told her when he saw that she was so sorrowful? He says, why, why do you not eat? Why are you so greedy? He says, am I not better to thee than ten sons? <laughs> That's the way a man thinks. <laughs> am I not better to thee than ten sons? Well, he was good to her. He gave her a worthy portion. He loved her. He desired to have a family by Hannah. It just had not happened. But Hannah continues to pray about it. And she pours out her heart to the Lord. She is, you know, in the Old Testament day, when they did this, the Bible would talk about how they spread their hands toward heaven. That just simply means you're committing everything in your life, everything in your soul to the good Lord. And that's what Hannah is doing right here. 
Now, she's praying, but not making an audible sound. But God doesn't have to have an audible sound, does he? <laughs> How many times do you pray without making an audible sound? I remember one time, a number of years ago, my dad was still living. He was visiting with us. And uh, he was sleeping upstairs, and we'd all gone to bed. And I heard him talking. And I got concerned, so I went up there to check on him. And I said, Dad, are you all right? He said, I'm just praying. <laughs> so he was praying out loud. And I pray out loud sometimes. But most of my prayers are silent prayers as far as the audible sound is concerned. I'm glad I don't have to, you know, pray audibly for God to hear me. You talk about getting rid of prayer in school, that's impossible. It's impossible to get rid of prayer in school as long as they give test exams every prayer in school. <laughs> may not be audible, <laughs> but I guarantee you when they get ready to take that final exam, they take a little time to talk to the Lord and say a prayer. <laughs> I did. <laughs> Lord, help me. <laughs> but the best help you can get for that is prepare yourself before you ever take it, right? <laughs> and then ask the Lord to bless you to have the memory for it. So she's not making any sound. Eli mistaken this, thinking that she's been drinking and drunk too much, and she's just, uh, her lips are moving, no sound's coming out of that, so he ch chastises her, charges this, and both was untrue. She had to endure that. And she tells Eli what's going on and what's happened. And after she gets through praying on this occasion right here, the Bible says that Hannah was comforted. Some way and somehow another, Hannah, I believe, was reconciled in her heart and in her life that she had laid this all out in the hands of the Lord and now it was up to the Lord to take it and do with it according to divine wisdom. It's not a bad place to be. And Eli says, you go in peace and the Lord comfort thee. The Bible says then that the Lord remembered Hannah and Elkanah knew Hannah in a husband-wife way. The Lord remembered her, and she conceived and brought forth a son. She named him Samuel, which means ask of the Lord. Samuel will become one of the greatest men in Israel's history. Samuel was the last of the judge. Last of the judges, he was the first of the prophets. Samuel was a result of of a fervent prayer, prayed for his mother, Hannah. And he became an example of a praying man. Find that Samuel practiced neology a lot like Nehemiah did. He was on his knees most of the time in his life. Samuel would grow up and serve the Lord as Hannah had said ahead of time when she prayed to the Lord, if you'll just bless me with this man child, she says, I will then give him back to you. What an unselfish prayer. You don't have a child, want a child, and pray that God might bless you to conceive and have a child. And then, after a short time of having this child, you're going to give the child up to where you're not going to raise him anymore. He's not going to be in the household anymore. Oh, you'll see him from time to time, but it's going to be different. He's going to be what we call a Nazarite. After she has a child, and name him Samuel, it's time to go to the city again for the yearly thing. But Hannah tells her husband, she says, I'm not going to go till I wean the child. Now, it's, it's clear, I think, where Hannah and her husband had talked about this because there was a law in the book of Deuteronomy that God gave in the law of Moses that if a woman made a vow 
and the husband didn't agree with it, he could overcome it. He could overrule it. But he doesn't do it. Now, let's think about this just for a little bit. This is not Elkanah's first child. But it's the first child by Hannah, the woman he really loves. Of the two. So he is her firstborn. So you have the law of the firstborn. You know it had to be special for him. How he loved Hannah. How he, it hurt him to see her so sorrowful before she ever conceived and had this child. How he tried to comfort her in his own way, in his own manner. And now she's going to have this child and they call him Samuel. But he's only going to have him for about three years. That's about the age of weaning in that day. When a woman weaned off a child, usually the child was around three years of age. So she's going to wean the child, nurse the child, wean the child for three years, and then she's going to bring him to Eli there in the temple. Now, the Lord, throughout history, has used barren women to bring forth very important people to carry out his wonderful promises. He used a woman by the name of Sarah who was 90 years old when she conceived and had a child whose name was Isaac. Isaac married a woman by the name of Rebekah. They were married a number of years before they ever had any children. The Bible says that Isaac beseeched the Lord, besought the Lord because Rebekah was barren. And the Lord hearkened unto him and she conceived and brought forth twins, Jacob and Esau. How important is Isaac in Israel's history? How important is Isaac in our own history? God had made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12 that he was going to bless him to become a great nation. At this time, he doesn't even have any children. He says, those that bless thee, I'll bless them. Those that curse thee, I'll curse them. But I will, it says, in you and your seed shall all the nations there to be blessed. And the seed he's talking about is the Lord Jesus Christ that would come hundreds of years down the road but cannot come hundreds of years down the road if there's not one born before that by the name of Isaac, the miraculous child. So Isaac is born. In the book of Galatians, we find where Paul makes special mention of this, of the seed of Abraham. Not seeds, but seed, and that seed was Christ. So then, Rebekah, who's barren, has twins, has Jacob and Esau. And who does Jacob become? He becomes an example of God's children in all stages of our experience with the Lord. He becomes the father of 12 sons who would make the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel, developed out of the 12 sons of Jacob when they were down there in the land of Egypt. That's how important he was. And then Jacob had a wife by the name of Rachel that he loved dearly. Remember her? And remember where he served Uncle Laban, seven years for her, only to have Uncle Laban make a switch on marriage night and gave him Leah instead of Rachel. He loved Rachel so much, he's willing to serve seven more years to be ordered to get her. It says, it seemed to him like just a few days. You talk about the love that Jacob had for this woman, for Rachel. He ended up having to serve 14 years to get the woman he wanted to begin with. Now he's got two wives. He's got Leah and he's got Rachel. But see, he starts having children by Leah, but not by Rachel. Leah's got a handmaid. Rachel's got a handmaid. He's having children. 
Jacob's having children by Leah, he's having children by her handmaid, having children by Rachel's handmaid. But not Rachel. Rachel's barren. It finally comes down to the point where God hearkened unto Rachel, blessed her, remembered her, blessed her to conceive, and guess who she had? She had Joseph. Joseph, that you read about in Genesis 37 through Genesis 50. A man that's a, has, you'll find more types of the Lord Jesus Christ in him than any other biblical character. One of the most famous men in Israel's history, one of the most famous men in the Bible, his name is Joseph. He was born from a barren woman by the name of Rachel. Jacob was born from the womb of a barren woman by the name of Rebecca. Isaac is born of a barren woman whose name is Sarah. How about Samson? You wouldn't be reading about Samson, talking about Samson, if God hadn't uh, miraculously intervened on behalf of Samson's mother. Her name is Manoah. Go here to Judges, I think it's chapter 13, and you'll find where she's barren, and the Philistines have, you know, been keeping uh, the Israelites oppressed for a long period of time, but God's going to deliver them. He's going to deliver them by a man by the name of Samson. But first of all, he's got to enable Manoah to conceive, which is no problem for God. And so here's a barren woman that conceives and brings forth a son. His name is Samson. And don't you enjoy reading about the life of Samson? <laughs> That's all possible because God used a barren woman to bring him into existence. How about John the Baptist? His mother was named Elizabeth. When you go to Luke chapter 1, you'll find where Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, are righteous in the sight of God, and they're ministering the Lord in the temple, burning incense. An angel comes to Zechariah and tells him, their prayers have come up with a memorial before God. Their prayers are answered, and your wife Elizabeth is going to conceive and bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name John. And Zechariah, who's been praying about this matter, Respond in such a doubtful way that God will not allow him to speak during the entire time she carries him for nine months. Unbelief will always rob you of something in life, brother. It will. It's pretty amazing. Here's a prayer. It's being prayed. The Lord answers the prayer. And after the Lord answers the prayer, uh, there's a doubter. Uh, and so Zacharias can't speak for nine months. But then, after nine months, Elizabeth has a little child, a little baby boy. His name is John the Baptist, who's the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, God has used a barren woman to bring forth a very important man in Israel's history. And, of course, Mary wasn't barren, but he used a virgin woman who'd never known a man to conceive and bring forth his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. Never doubt the power of God when it comes to matters like this how the course of history uh, took shape and form, my friends, because God ruled and overruled and intervened even over nature itself to bring forth all these important people in Israel's history, but also our history from this standpoint. Our Savior was a Jewish man who lived here upon the face of this earth. His name was Jesus. And so we find here that Samuel comes forth from the womb of a woman that was barren, but God hearkened unto her and opened her womb, and she conceived and brought forth Samuel. Now, if you read into the second chapter, you're going to find some interesting things. You're going to find after this, God gives her three more sons and two daughters. 
He's going to bless her to have five more children after Samuel. What a reward. She's going to give Samuel up at the age of three. She's going to take him to the temple to Eli. And Eli's going to train him up in the duties of one that would attend to the things in the tabernacle and to the temple there. She puts him under uh, his care. God's going to judge Eli and his son severely. There's going to come a time shortly after this in chapter 4 where there's a battle and the Philistines are going to take the ark of God and Eli's two sons are slain in the battle. The news comes back. Now the Lord's already shown Samuel all this is going to happen. And so the news comes back to Eli that the ark of God has been taken. We spoke about the ark of God last Sunday, one of the three arks. The ark of God is taken. And his two sons have both been slain in the battle. And then the Bible says he was 98 years old. He was old and he was heavy. And when he got the news that the ark of God had been taken, he fell off backwards and broke his neck and died. Now he's dead, his two sons are dead, and the ark of God's been taken in enemy hands. All because of corruption. All because of corruption. But God's got another man waiting in the wings. His name is Samuel. And Samuel's going to take Israel in their transition of their history in the formation and development of this nation. He's going to use Samuel to bring it all about. So Samuel has been trained by Eli. Now, one of Eli's son's wife was expecting a child. And when she heard that this, when she heard that the ark of God was taken, Eli died, her husband died, and by the way, her brother-in-law died. She had the child, but she died in childbirth, but before she died, she named that child Ichabod. And the Ichabod means the glory of the Lord had departed. Sad time in Israel's history. The glory of God had departed. The ark of God was in enemy hands. Eli, that's uh, the the most important spiritual, so to speak, spiritual person in that time is dead. His two sons are dead. Now I want you to notice something here. Eli and his sons had religious homes, but they were godless. There's a difference in religion and godliness, a big difference. They had a religious home in terms of the title, so to speak, but their homes were godless. But Elkanah and Hannah had a godly home and they gave God the very best they had. The firstborn son. His name was Samuel. After that, God's going to bless her and him to have five more children, three more sons and two daughters. But when you start chapter 2, the end of chapter 1 is where Hannah brings Samuel to Eli. Now, remember, she's had him for three years. She carried him for nine months. She's had him for three years. She weans him now, but in fulfillment of her promise, you're going to find where she takes him to Eli, and now she's not going to see him every day like she had for three years. You might expect her to go off on the side, weep, be sad. You might think that'd be the case, right? As she sees him taken away by Eli, I mean, 
You know, all the mothers here know what it is to take your little child to kindergarten for the first day. I remember Karen coming back weeping. What's wrong with my little baby's going to kindergarten? <laughs> but it, it can be so dramatic, I guess. I was glad. <laughs> anyway, you'd expect maybe her to be like that, but she wasn't. She breaks into one of the most well-known songs in the Holy, Holy Word of God and all Scripture. She starts off by praying and praising God. She was happy. She was delighted. God heard her prayer. God blessed her prayer. She has this child. She has him for three years. And now she does what she tells God she's going to do. And she lends him uh, back to the Lord. She returned him back. And she's happy and she's shouting and she's praying and she's praising. And she's writing this wonderful hymn. Read it. 1 Samuel 2. And then go to 2 Samuel 22 and read David's song. And then go to Luke chapter 2 and read Mary's song. And you'll find all three of these songs have great similarities to them. And there's three things about all three of these songs that make up any God-honoring hymn. One is it's about the grace of God on undeserving people. That's the theme in all three of these. God's grace upon undeserving people. Another theme in these songs is that God is victorious over all their enemies. And the third part of these hymns, these songs they wrote and sang, is God's blessings upon his children. There's three dominant things in all of these hymns you'll find in common in Hannah, David, and Mary's song. You know how Mary's song starts off, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit rejoiceth in God my Savior. That's a great way to start any song. My soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And then you start reading all the contents and you'll find very similar language in her song that you're going to find in Hannah's over here. What an example that Hannah is to all of us. Not just as a mother, as a person. The fervency of her prayer. The persistence of her prayer. How unselfish she was in her prayer. How unselfish she was. Concerning this child that God gave unto her, she never retaliated against a, a Penuel. She, never, oh, she did come to when she came to Eli. You know what she told Eli? She says, oh, by the way, Eli, I'm that woman that prayed three years ago that you talked to me about. I don't know if Eli remembered her or not, but she remembered Eli. <laughs> I'm the woman that prayed in your presence three years ago for a son, and here's the son right here. Wonder what Eli thought. <laughs> Wonder what he thought. Here's a, he, he charged her with being drunk. And she said, I'm the woman that prayed three years ago, and here's a child that God blessed me to have, and I brought him to you just like I told you I would. Here he is. His name is Samuel. You take care of him. Now, the Lord asked the question, can a woman forsake her second child that she should not have compassion on the son of a womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will not I forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. The Lord is saying, I'll never forget you. I'll never forsake you. He says, your name's right here in the palms of my hands. And they're engraved, which that word engraved means etched into, showing how permanent it is right here. 
Every day that you live, don't you see the palms of your hands on a pretty regular basis throughout the day? Maybe every time you wash your hands, whatever, you always turn your hands one side or the other. You're always seeing the palms of your hands, right? So the Lord says, I'm engraving thee where? In the palms of my hands. You're there forever. I'm never going to forget you. I'm never going to forsake you. I see you every single day. Isn't it wonderful that God does that? You know, I, I try to visualize all of you uh, pretty much daily, all through the week in my mind. But uh, I, I, it's impossible for me to visualize every single person every single day like I'd like to, but I do try to do that. Well, that's not impossible with God. He's got a people that you cannot number as the stars of heaven, the sand of the seashore, and they're all engraved in the palms of his hands, and he sees his hands on a daily basis. I'll never forget you. I'll never forsake you. Oh, I'm telling you, he will not. When it comes to his covenant with God, with his people, God will never forget his covenant. David thought this much about it to say this in 2 Samuel chapter 23. He said, uh, he said, God hath made with me an everlasting covenant. Therefore, he, although he maketh, not, he, uh, he maketh it not to grow, he hath made with me personally, individually, an everlasting covenant. You are a covenant child of grace, a covenant child of God. Look in Hebrews 13, 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. You're a covenant child. That means God made a covenant with you that's unconditional. We believe in unconditional election. That means there's not one thing you did that was a condition that had to be made for God to elect you. God elected you unconditionally. God chose you unconditionally. God loved you, chose you, named you, gave you to his son in a covenant relationship that he'll never forget and he'll never forsake you. Right? <laughs> he'll never forget his promises he's made to you. Second Peter chapter 1, he speaks about the promises of God being exceeding and gracious, exceeding and plentiful promises of God. Oh, it would take a it would take a year of Sundays to just preach on the promises of God for preached on it for 52 Sundays in a row. But I'm telling you, God is a promise a maker and a promise keeper. There, you know, the promise keeper movement started way back 25 years or more ago. I never did jump on the bandwagon of that. Because I said there's only one promise keeper I know of, and that's God. He's the only one I've ever known that kept all of his promises. Why would I, why would I make like I can and would? Uh, I know what kind of a person I am. I know what kind of person you all are, you know. And the ones I was talked to in that day, there's just one promise keeper. But thank God there's one. And the promise keeper is Almighty God. And he'll never uh, break one promise that he's made to you. Look in Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Now, what good is a promise if the person who made the promise is not willing or able to keep the promise? Have you ever heard somebody make a promise and you might, and you might have said, listen, you might not be able to keep that promise. You better, better back up just a minute. You, you, you just said something you may not be able to keep. How many times have you done that? So what good is a promise if the person who made the promise is not able or willing to keep the promise? But I'm telling you, God is able and God is willing to keep every promise he's ever made to you. Now, over here in the book of Hebrews 6.17, the writer tells us that God is immutable. And he says that God has made a promise 
to the heirs of promise, that by two immutable things, which is impossible for God to lie. Now, you're called here heirs of promise. Why is that? Because every connection you have with God, your relationship, your deliverance, your salvation is all based upon a promise that God has made. God cannot lie. Titus says so in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. God's not going to forget his promise. Have you ever said something like this to somebody? Well, you know, you promised 10 years ago to do this, that, and the other. And, and then the person you said that to, well, I don't remember that. <laughs> I don't remember that. Uh, sometimes uh, having amnesia is convenient for people. You know what I mean? And so I don't remember that. Well, somebody remembered you made a promise. Well, I'm going to tell you what. God has made some promises exceed for my friends and their precious promises. And he is not going to forget one promise he's ever made to his children. He's not, he, God has never over-promised, under-promised. He's just a God of promise. Will a woman forsake her second child? Yea, they may. But I'll never forget thee. God will never forget the great covenant, the everlasting covenant that he made with you before time ever began. I'd just like to emphasize that to you in your mind this morning, that your connection with God is based upon God's word and God's promise and God's action in your life. And God cannot forget that. And God will not forget that. He says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. There with loving kindness have I drawn thee. See, you see what he said there? I've loved it. What kind of love? An everlasting love. He's not going to forget that love, is he? I, I love reading the different words that come before the, the word love when it talks about God. Like Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. But God, who's rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even we were dead in trespassing and sins. That verse is just teaching you and teaching me that by nature you are unlovable, but God loved you anyway. That's a miracle. There's nothing about your human nature that's lovable in sight of God, but yet God, before time again, loved you with an everlasting love. John 3, 16, for God so loved. I love, he's, not, he's never going to forget the so love. He so loved you, he gave his only begotten son. John 3, 16, and Ephesians 2, 4 are two of the strongest verses about God's love and all the word of God. He loved the unlovable, and he loved you so much, he's willing to sacrifice his son. And I don't know of anybody I've ever met that was willing to take and sacrifice one of their children on behalf of somebody else. I believe I'm looking at the faces of the people that would sacrifice your life for your wife and for your children, but to sacrifice one of your children on behalf of somebody else, never met that person yet. That's what God did. God so loved the world of his elect, so loved the world of his family, his children, his people, his bride, his church, that he gave his only begotten son. He'll never forget that. The love of God that cannot, uh, you know, be separated. When Paul asked the question, Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trials or tribulation, nakedness, perils or sword, separation? He said, nay, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. He says, I am persuaded neither death nor life or hype nor death. Or angels or principalities or powers or anything present, anything to, uh, now or, or to come. He says, not even life itself or death itself can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God will never forget his everlasting, non-ending love. He won't forget it and he won't forsake you. 
he says, remember he appeals to the highest level of love a person might be ever experienced in this world, and that's the love of a mother to a little baby that she's carried in her womb for nine months, and now she's still nursing that little child. But every once in a while, you'll find a mother that will forget and forsake. God says, I won't do that. I won't do that. Somebody asked this question. A scoffer asked this question. Found in 2 Peter chapter 3. It says, where is the promise of his coming? For since the beginning of time, all things continue as they were. And Peter writes and says that they are, those who say that are, are uh, willfully ignorant. Now, it's one thing to be ignorant. It's another thing to be willfully ignorant. They are willfully ignorant. He goes on to say, because things have not continued as they were, because there was something called a flood that took place one time, where the water covered this earth, and all the ungodly perished in that flood. The ungodly world perished in that flood. Things haven't continued as they always have. But one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. God is not slack concerning his promise. And then a few verses later, he says, now we, according to his promise. Notice how this always pops up. We, according to his promise. The word according means in harmony with. But we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth. Where did he make that promise? Go to Isaiah 66. You'll find where he made the promise. But according to his promise, not my promise, not your promise, but according to his promise, God's promise, we look for new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Just another expression for heaven itself. I'm looking for heaven. You know why? Because God promised. In Acts chapter 1, you find where... In Acts chapter 1, you'll find where there were some men of Galilee who was right outside the city of Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, they saw a man leave this earth and start going up into the heavens. His name was Jesus and the angel said, why stand ye gazing? This same Jesus that you see going away shall in like manner come again. Just like you see him go away, he's coming again. So you know why I'm looking for him? You know, Hebrews 9, 28 says, unto those that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin and salvation. You know why I'm looking for him? Because he made a promise. He told his disciples in John 14, he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many mansions, not so I'd have told you so. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll return and receive you unto myself. You know why I believe I've got a mansion in heaven, a place of abode, a dwelling place, and one day the Lord will receive me and take me out. You know why I believe that? Because he made a promise. God will never forget you, and God will never forsake you.